Welcome to This is Robotics, radio news, podcasting news and commentary from around the world. Please join us for today's radio news report with your host, Tom Green, for news, analysis, and commentary from the wide world of robotics. Radio News is a production of Asian Robotics Review, your most trusted news resource in global robotics. And now, here's Tom. Thank you, Claire, for that wonderful introduction. You're always so cheerful and full of enthusiasm. That's awesome. Welcome, everyone, to our podcast. This is Robotics Radio News, the number one global robotics news podcast that's 100% wall-to-wall, all things robotics, gathered from around the world and brought to your ears. You're going to love what you hear. Thank you for making us part of your busy day or late-night companion at the lab. We're great over breakfast, a calming force during your morning or evening commute, and your any-time-of-day pal for a peek into what's going on in the fascinating world of robotics. This is our third program, October 2021. October's program will take a look at Amazon Astro in our living rooms. Is Amazon about to crack the code on how to make a mobile robot a part of the family? Amazon shocked the robotics world in 2012 with Kiva, then again in 2015 with Alexa, and maybe now is gearing up for a trifecta. Then we'll visit the resumes of philosophy majors to see how they uniquely are qualified for the world of AI, robotics, and big data. Yes, you heard right, philosophers. Every October 29th, International Internet Day is celebrated around the world. But did you know that it's the wrong date, the wrong people, and the wrong computers? Larry Roberts and Tom Merrill did it first in February of 1966, three years earlier than the 1969 event so widely celebrated. And the reason why Larry and Tom did it is absolutely fascinating. Then we'll visit with Space Junk. Whether it's mom's dinner table or out of space, we haven't learned yet to clean up after ourselves. Meet the robots that want to take on the chore. Then we'll peer into the wonderful world of machine tools. Tools that make tools. Without which, there are no robots, automation, or smart factories. There are only three countries that dominate. Perish the thought that we have a trade war with any one of them. And, have you ever heard of Dago City? No? Thought so. Well, Dago City is on its way to being the largest and most influential robotics technopolis in Asia. Maybe the world. Okay, let's get on with the news. You're going to love what you hear. The importance of Astro. Are personal home robots headed for a major restart? Is Amazon at it again? To see Amazon's new personal or home robot, Astro, rolling across a floor has prompted some to dismiss the diminutive machine as useless or just a fancy Alexa on wheels. Watching the slick but lame promotional videos of Astro straining mightily to look useful seem only to reinforce what the skeptics are saying. However, could we be witnessing a return to 2012 and 2015 when Amazon shocked robotics with the purchase of Kiva and then introduced Alexa? Two events that quickly shot Amazon to leadership in robotics in a firm place in millions of homes worldwide. This time around, the e-commerce behemoth may have its sights set once again on the home front, which has proven to be a very nasty place for home robots to get in the door, take hold, and flourish. Most have failed miserably at becoming a member of the family. 
In fact, home or personal robots have been mighty scarce in the six years since Alexa successfully stormed the front doors of millions. Amazon's test launch of Astro at a big discount with the intention of plumbing customer feedback may be its first toe dip into the market. Will Astro, like all the others buried on robotics boot hill of personal robots, also miss the mark? Or, oh, by the way, what does a home robot need to be to be successful? So many have failed. Amazon may well be the one that finally cracks the code and then reaps a massive profit because of it. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's the Amazon strategy. Let's take a look at what might be going on. There's a huge demand for personal home robots, not including cleaning robots that dominate the category. For the 51 billion forecast for personal home robots through 2028, over 35 billion is for cleaning robots. That's according to Emergen Research. The $16 billion difference covers in-home companion robots, educational robots, assistance, security, and entertainment robots. Astro could well realize a sizable chunk of that difference. One advantage that Amazon can readily see is that Astro does not have much competition. When Alexa got going in 2015, first launched in November of 2014, and was welcomed into millions of homes, it all but shredded the personal robot industry, which, with few exceptions, has been underground ever since. Back in 2015, a venture beat headline full of expectation seemed to say it all. 2015 could be the year of the personal robot. Well, it looked that way until Alexa showed up. Just to get a sense of the demand for personal robots in 2015, we conducted a survey. Turned out that 45% of the respondents said they would buy one. And get this, over 25% said that they would be willing to spend between $7,000 and $15,000 for a personal robot. In 2016, I wrote an article ahead of the Consumer Electronics Show for 2016 titled Sweet 16 for 2016, which profiled 16 personal robots that looked like they had a super chance at success in someone's home. In short order, 90% were soon either dead or moribund. Again, Alexa. And at $180 for the tower and $50 for the dot form factor, Alexa's price to performance ratio was unbeatable. By November of 2019, when Alexa turned five years old, the Alexa website said it all. Customers already use Alexa on more than 100 million devices from Amazon and third-party device manufacturers, as well as the Alexa app on iOS and Android. With the release of the new devices like Echo Auto, Echo Buds, Echo Frame, and Echo Loop, it's even easier for customers to talk to Alexa no matter where they are. Customers can now also automatically invoke skills using Alexa routines based on the time of day, location, or, and other triggers. None of my Sweet 16 for 2016 could ever dream of matching that kind of firepower, ever. Now, here in 2021, all that Alexa connectivity is rolling around on the floor with a few added doodads, like a 10-inch HD screen with touch input, a 5-megapixel camera and a periscope camera that is 1080p with a 132-degree field of view, including three Qualcomm processors on board, as well as Amazon's own AZ-1. In some respects, Astro is the return of the earlier jettisoned visual and kinetic elements, codenamed Project C, that Lab 126, that's Amazon's development laboratory, always wanted to include in the original Alexa release, but were rejected by management. 
Stripped of its screen and wheels, Project C became Project D, then named Echo, then, of course, Alexa. In Astro, Project C has returned. But do we really need what Astro has to offer? Is the two-foot-tall, 20-pound robot what's needed? Wired has an interesting headline to that point. It reads, Amazon's Astro is a robot without a cause. As Lauren Good points out in her article, the company has been working on this for nearly four years, and it has plans for Astro. It's just not quite sure exactly what those are yet, so it's hoping thousands of early customers can help define what it's for. Amazon's hardware chief, Dave Limp, identified a few potential use cases in an interview with Wired, including elder care and home security. But ultimately, Limp says, the company wants to get into customers' hands so it can identify unique use cases for the bot. The personal robots industry is not totally wanting for success. Sony's Ibo was one big success. The $2,900 autonomous robot dog has sold 150,000 units since it hit the market in 1999. That's $435 million. It was a big hit at the 2001 Canton Toy Fair, where it helped the robot virtual pet subcategory of the toy market to jump from $5 million to $159 million in a single year. Ibo still has a long-lived, intensely loyal, near-fanatical fan base. Interestingly, Ibo was the deft combination of the great engineering and great design, as artist Hajimi Soyorama shared his talents with engineer Toshitada Doi, who also invented the compact disc, and both of them together created Ibo. Just maybe personal robotics needs more of that dual input. Artists and designers weighing in on personal robots may well be the key to their ultimate success in people's homes. Guy Hoffman, in his IEEE dirge on the passing of Anki, Jibo, and Curry, thinks design is definitely a missing element. He says, there is a long-standing tradition of design research, writes Hoffman, but social robotics industry and academia only flirts with it in a cursory manner. Says Hoffman, our industry is still dominated by engineers, and sadly, too many engineers think that design is something you just add on to the end to make your product more attractive. With Amazon Studios and Amazon Games in-house, Astro could be very well served with creativity and story, art, and design if Limp widens his feedback loop. After all, it wasn't a bunch of engineers who concepted Disneyland. It was Walt Disney, who then gathered together engineers who shared his vision of course, if Astro does on wheels the same things that Alexa does sitting on a tabletop, then Limp's feedback is going to be highly unremarkable. My simple wish is for some sort of meaningful digital assistant, robot, tabletop, smart device, or even a drone to hang out with me, help organize my life, and save me money. A machine with something to say would be nice as well. Is that so much to ask? There's room in my home for some sort of AI-imbued 5G cloud-connected digital automaton that can make my busy life a lot better off. And I've got budget space as well to buy a home robot. Maybe not 5,000, but I've got budget space. I'd rather have the machine racking its circuitry to discover a nifty new way for me to pay down my mortgage. Now, that's a chore with meaning, not dusty carpeting. Simply put, Modern life is difficult and needs help. I need a robot to fit my lifestyle and perform worthwhile tasks like browsing liquor store websites for the best wine deals, suggesting best buys to me, 
than ordering and having them delivered. I maybe do the same shopping for food each week, based upon the household inventory that the robot keeps watch over. In the future, I'll have every stranger coming to my condo first check in and get screened by my robot. Plumber, electrician, police with a warrant, Jehovah Witnesses, no matter who. It's all going to be mandatory. My robot's going to check them out. My own live-in doorman, so to speak. At the very least, it could be very good for record-keeping. It could also be my in-home tutor when I want to learn Mandarin, or anything else. Or maybe watching TV together, it could act as my go-to authority in pointing out fake news, deep fakes, and famous fakers. Or my household guard dog when I'm away, enabling me to see through its eyes using my cell phone. Of course, Astro can do that. All of which are so much more important to me than awkwardly scrambling eggs or trimming crabgrass. I want my home robot to do things that matter. I'm waiting for a robot that will read aloud to me with my choice of book and my choice of actors' voices. Like, uh, how about dialing up the journals of Lewis and Clark and then dialing in the voice of Orson Welles to do the reading with the passages about Sacagawea read by Lauren Bacall. Even though both Welles and Bacall are long dead, with technology, anything's possible. Or, for a little bit of humor, Mad Magazine, read by Ronald Reagan. Practical and fun is how I want my home robot. Sadly, Astro is neither, for now. Come on, Amazon, let's get going. The student union at my college had a small clutch of tables at one end that seemed exclusively to be inhabited by philosophy majors. Passing by, one could always hear names like Hegel, Nietzsche, and Sartre, and scary words like Gottendammerung ushering up from the group. Sometimes, one of them would blurt out, but who's going to give us a job? Which would be followed by gales of laughter. The reality was that philosophy majors had a tough time getting hired anywhere. Not any longer. Philosophy majors are in demand, big time. Here's why. Philosophy grads are now being sought after. According to the Financial Times, philosophers with dim career prospects are in demand to research the ethics of data tech. Here, here for the table in the corner. We've all been curious about what kinds of jobs digital disruption will create that will mesh well with robots, AI, automation, and humans. Well, the future has spoken and has just popped a well-paid, career-friendly job into view, that of philosopher. Yes, you heard it correctly. Philosophy majors are now suddenly tumbling into vogue to deal with the complex ethical issues involved in using artificial intelligence for policymaking. Helen Burgett's Professor of Society and Internet at the Oxford Internet Institute, University of Oxford, and also Public Policy Program Director at the Alan Turing Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence, told the Financial Times, I spent a day this week interviewing philosophers. Said Professor Mergetz, we need someone at the Turing Institute to help government navigate the complex ethical issues involved in using artificial intelligence for policymaking. Our current fellow is working nights and weekends. He has just written the UK government's guidance on ethics and safety for the public sector. Wow, that's a big jump up for philosophy majors. The career prospects of philosophers were not always as promising, she said. Only a few years ago, discouraged undergraduates would complain that despite the intellectual rigor of their degrees, the only interview preparation they had to do after graduating was practicing how to ask, would you like fries with that? Even newly minted PhDs struggled in the job market. 
academic openings were few. Now, these philosophers are in high demand to research the ethics of data and technology. Robots prime among them. She says that data-intensive technologies, usually and often inaccurately labeled artificial intelligence, are having a profound effect on research and challenging the boundaries of the fields that feed the pipeline of technology specialists. These technologies provoke a whole raft of new ethical issues and dilemmas. They can reduce the transparency and accountability of business processes and decision-making, requiring frameworks to ensure trust. There are issues of privacy and rights connected with personal data. Machine learning algorithms can introduce bias and discrimination. Resolving such issues requires an approach grounded in ethics and an understanding of what causes bias in the first place. Conversely, social scientists can be ill-equipped to research society in which digital platforms are embedded. Such platforms offer exciting possibilities for my discipline, she says, which has traditionally been based on surveys about what people think they might do, like who they're going to vote for in an election, or what they think they've already done but may not remember, rather than today's huge banks of real-time data. But to use such data requires expertise that can only be provided by a diverse research team. So, all you philosophers, hold your dusty penguin paperback of Plato's Republic High. It's about to get you a good job. Fancy that. Space junk is a growing menace high above our heads. Think it's a good job for robots? Space, a final frontier. Captain James T. Kirk and his Space Trek compadres may have a hard time leaving or returning to Earth unless the Enterprise has a huge bumper on its nose to push through the gazillion chunks of space debris surrounding good old Mother Earth. Low Earth orbit is overcrowded with space junk that jeopardizes manned and unmanned missions. Low Earth orbital LEO is an altitude between 160 and 2,000 kilometers straight up, or 99 miles to 1,200 miles straight up above the Earth's surface, the sweet spot where satellites like to hang out. Motley Fool points pointed out there's a junkyard orbiting Earth. Tens of millions of pieces of space junk pose a clear and present danger to satellites. Wow, that's strong. Is anything being done about all this dangerous space debris? Scientific American replied with an answer saying, space junk removal is not going smoothly. That doesn't sound too encouraging. So we took a look. Low Earth orbital LEO is looking at more clutter coming its way. SpaceX Starlink intends to orbit 12,000 small satellites by 2027, which is six times the number of satellites currently in orbit. On the doomsday side of things, there's the Kessler effect, proposed by NASA scientist Donald Kessler in 1978. The Kessler effect is like out-of-space dominoes going wild, uh, colliding space junk, hitting each other, and setting off millions of other explosions, which could make Leo totally unusable for anything. The future of spaceflight, manned or otherwise, may well be in jeopardy unless we can clean up the mess we've made since 1960. But is cleanup even possible? It seems like a perfect scenario for robot trash collectors, or maybe a gigantic space-born Roomba cranking up to suck up all that bad stuff. From 2009 to 2019, at least half a dozen collisions of active satellites 
with inactive space debris were recorded. In 2019 alone, a defunct Russian satellite narrowly missed colliding the Bigelow Aerospace Genesis 2 experimental habitat. And in a second incident, a European space agency Aeolus satellite had to fire its thruster to avoid colliding with SpaceX Starlink communication satellite. As more and more satellites are put into orbit over time, joining the 5,000 satellites already up there, the chances increase that one of the nearly 130 million items of space debris, from pieces the size of paint chips to some the size of a Greyhound bus, will collide with a working satellite or rocket, potentially setting off the Kessler effect. All of this debris is traveling at nearly 18,000 miles per hour. That's faster than a bullet exiting a gun. A single paint chip almost took out the International Space Station. The CEO of Iridium, Matt Desch, which has got 30 dead satellites up there that won't deorbit for 100 years, says it's not economically feasible to go and deal with space junk. DARPA wanted to, and proposed Operation Phoenix, which Congress declined, saying that private companies should be taking on the job instead of the government and its taxpayers. Well, how about robots? China just launched a robot into low Earth orbit, capable of scooping up debris and other space junk left behind by earlier spacecraft with a giant net. Imagine that. Like the golden net of the Greek god Hephaestus, they have a net that's going to scoop up some of this larger pieces of space junk. Called the NEO-01, the net-bearing space robot was launched on March 6th. The 66-pound or 30-kilogram 30, 30 robot was developed by a startup in Shenzhen uh, called Origin Space. Then there's the American aerospace giant Northrop Grumman, which just launched its mission extension vehicle, or MEV-1, on a mission to prove that it can intercept failing satellites remove them from traffic, repair them, and place them back into orbit. That's, that's quite a trick. Also, there's Japan's answer, the End of Life Services by Astroscale, which is a spacecraft retrieval service for satellite operators. The End of Life Services, which successfully demonstrated repeated magnetic capture for debris, docking, and removal, seems to be a fairly viable answer. It consists of two spacecraft a servicer satellite, and a client satellite. Launched stacked together, the servicer satellite has been developed to safely remove debris from orbit equipped with proximity rendezvous technologies and a magnetic docking mechanism. In March, Astroscale confirmed the successful launch of its mission. This marks the start of the world's first commercial mission to prove the core technologies necessary for space debris docking and removal. Another approach to the problem hails from Europe, where Swiss startup ClearSpace has announced it will begin preparing this year to launch a mission in 2025. Its goal to remove a 100-kilogram jettisoned Vesper upper stage rocket orbiting roughly 400 miles above Earth. Working on a $130 million contract for the European Space Agency, ClearSpace will send up into space a tow truck, a tow truck robot to grapple the Vespa, then move it to deorbit so that both it and its prize burn up in the atmosphere. If this demonstration project is successful, it'll be the first time ever that a satellite has been used to sweep a bit of space junk out of orbit. Then there's another one called the Remove Debris Mission from the UK. It will perform four innovative active debris removal experiments beginning in October with the deployment of a net. Here's another net. 
a net developed by Airbus in Bremen, which has been designed to capture a target CubeSat or Cube Satellite. A harpoon, get that, a harpoon. A harpoon developed by Airbus will be fired from 20 meters to penetrate the target, and once harpooned, removed debris craft will deploy a large drag sail to speed up the deorbiting process of space junk into the Earth's atmosphere where it will burn up. Amazing. Well, the bottom line here is, can any money be made from any of this? Which Iridium CEO Matt Desch says is hard to do. We'll have to wait for the robots to give us the answer. International Internet Day on October 29th celebrates what many consider the most important invention in human history, the Internet. It's hard to fathom a world without the Internet. The Internet provides instant access to information. Search engines make this information easy to attain. In 1969, Charlie Klein, a student programmer, at UCLA transmitted a message on the 29th of October 1969 from the computer housed at UCLA to a computer positioned at the Stanford Research Institute 350 miles distant. That's the transmission that is celebrated every October 29th. Unfortunately, it's not true. The date is wrong, the distance is wrong, and the two computers hooking up were not the first. The real story is a fabulous look at engineers and their need to democratize and share knowledge well before the internet came into being. Here's how two engineers, Larry Roberts and Tom Merrill, sent digital packets over 3,000 miles to each other in 1966. The fabulous part is why they did it. My newest book, The Untold Story of Everything Digital, has one of its central characters, the whirlwind computer, all 2,500 square feet of her. Whirlwind was the first real-time digital computer, built by Jay Forrester and his band of brash, upstart engineers. They shocked the world with that first-ever digital computer. They instantly went from being brash upstarts to global experts of the highest regard when that machine kicked on. Whirlwind was not only the first-ever real-time digital computer, but she was also the first mother of other computers. Give a listen to this. It's a 1961 CBS TV series called Tomorrow. It was hosted by David Wayne. This particular episode of the CBS TV show was about Mother Whirlwind and her children, the TX2 and the Q32. Tomorrow, a preview of the future as it begins to take shape in the laboratories of the world. Good evening. I'm David Wayne, and as all of you are, I'm concerned with the world in which we're going to live tomorrow. A world in which a new machine, the digital computer, may be of even greater importance than the atomic bomb. Can machines really think? Even the scientists argue that one. I don't believe that we can say yet that machines do think. I have a basic question which I always ask, and that is, are these producing anything really new? Until I see a machine producing genuinely new things, I will not agree that machines think. I confidently expect that within a matter of 10 or 15 years, something will emerge from the laboratories which is not too far from the robot of science fiction fame. Mother Whirlwind produced an abundance of offspring. 
fecund is, I guess, what you'd call her. Mother Whirlwind had 30 clones of herself made on an IBM assembly line for use across the U.S. and Canada for the first ever air defense system. Whirlwind's clones, renamed for the military, were called ANSFQ-7. When MIT moved its military projects out of Cambridge to a new facility in Lexington, Mass., called Lincoln Laboratory, Mother Whirlwind couldn't tag along with the brash upstart engineers who built her when they set up shop at Lincoln Laboratory. So a clone of her was made in the basement of Lincoln Laboratory, an all-transistorized version called the TXO, or TIXO, which was soon given to MIT's Research Laboratory of Electronics, while another all-transistorized whirlwind clone was built called the TX2. Jay Forrester and his engineering crew, who had built Whirlwind and Tixo, as well as showed IBM how to clone Whirlwind on an assembly line, set about building the TX2. Clear across the country in Santa Monica, the System Development Corporation built a transistorized version of a Q7, which was renamed Q32. The TX2 solid-state computer at Lincoln Laboratory, with Larry Roberts at the helm, and the ANFSQ32 solid-state computer at System Development Corporation with Tom Merrill at the helm in Santa Monica. Larry Roberts at the TX2 was worried. His fear was that the local networking nodes that were being planned would only serve researchers and the elite. He wanted the common man and the common woman to share in all the knowledge that would someday cascade over the network. He believed in what J.C.R. Licklider called the intergalactic network concept, where everyone on the globe is interconnected and can access programs and data at any site from anywhere. Over dial-up telephone lines, Larry Roberts showed the feasibility of wide area networking. The test was to send a single word, login, L-O-G-I-N, to Tom Merrill in Santa Monica. The first two letters, the L and the O, went fine. Then the system crashed. Miraculously, an hour later, the system came back up and finished sending the G-I-N. That transmission took place February 6, 1966, three years earlier than the 1969 date celebrated every October. Thank you, Larry and Tom. You're the real deal. Have you ever heard of Daegu City? The Koreans are humble with their many achievements in robotics. I've been writing about them for 10 years now and have come to call Korea the quiet giant of robotics. Periodically, I have to pull back the curtain to see what's going on there. Let's do a little pulling back, shall we? About Daegu City, you're going to be hearing and reading a lot in the very near future. Daegu City is a provincial capital in Korea. Daegu City just won a very intense competition among Korea's biggest and most elite cities to become Korea's robotics technopolis. The plans call for the technopolis to become the biggest and most influential of its kind in all of Asia, officially called the National Robot Innovation Project, Korea's newest innovation hub and Asia's next robotics technopolis. It received an initial $257 million for winning. It's to build itself out from 2022 to 2028. Already in-house is Korea, the Korea Institute for Robot Industry Advancement, and it also attracted Hyundai Robotics, as well as over 100 other companies and R&D facilities and educational organizations. The plan is for over 600 companies to come aboard to form a massive robotics technopolis. The two most active people behind it all are Kim Chang-ho, chairman of the Global Robotics Clusters, amongst other things, and Kwon Young-jin, mayor of Daegu. Kim Chang-ho is the chairman of the Global Robotics Clusters, which is an international organization 
of some 17 national clusters working to foster the position of Daegu as a global robot city and to efficiently and systematically carry out projects to promote the robot industry. Kim Chang-ho is also chairman of the Robot Enterprise Promotion Association, geared to promoting Daegu as a robotics technopolis. In addition to that, Kim Chang-ho is also CEO of his own company, Agenex Tech Limited. I spoke with uh, Kim Chang-ho last week. He's an energetic and amazing leader who is determined to see the robotics technopolis come to fruition. Then there's Kwon Young-jin, mayor of Daegu Metropolitan City. As he said, winning the National Robot Innovation Project was possible through Daegu's strong will to foster the robotics industry in our continuous efforts to create a robotics industry ecosystem. I feel a great responsibility for this recognition and encouragement at the national level, and we will do our best to contribute to the development of the national robotics industry through mutual cooperation. The Global Robotics Cluster is holding its next meeting in Daegu in November. More on what is happening there, as well as my interview with Chairman Kim Chang-ho later on in the month of November. In the meantime, bravo to Korea's newest innovation hub and Asia's next robotics technopolis. Our last story for today involves machine tools. I know that doesn't sound sexy, but without machine tools, there's no advanced manufacturing. There are no robots, no automation, no factories of the future, fourth industrial revolution. In the 15th century, somebody invented a screwdriver. Shortly thereafter, somebody invented a machine that made screwdrivers. That machine was a machine that made tools. John Wilkinson made a boring machine in the Industrial Revolution in England, uh, which made James Watt's steam engine feasible. Henry Maudsley is considered a founding father of machine tool technology. His inventions were an important foundation for the Industrial Revolution. His invention of a metal lathe to cut metal that enabled the manufacture of standard screw-thread sizes was really important to the Industrial Revolution. Because standard screw-thread sizes, in turn, allowed interchangeable parts and the development of mass production. Machine tools, tools that make machines, are very important. And there's a lack thereof throughout the world except in three countries. Germany, China, and Japan. Now, I think everybody involved or is concerned about manufacturing should really read uh, a very special research report put out by a group called uh, Bismarck Analysis. Uh, It's a 17-page report. We have it on our website at Asian Robotics Review uh, in the uh, This is Robotics radio news section. Bismarck says of themselves, Bismarck Analysis examines institutions, industries, and individuals on behalf of our clients. While much of our work is confidential, we occasionally make select analytical products available to the general public. They thought this one was important enough to make it available to the general public, and that's where I scooped it up. Bismarck says, machine tools are essential in industrial metalworking and as a type of capital equipment. Machine tool consumption is a strong indicator of overall manufacturing capacity. Production is highly concentrated, with a small number of countries producing the vast majority of precision machine tools used in advanced manufacturing worldwide. The most important machine tool manufacturers are China, 
Germany, and Japan. China is unique in its production because it is overwhelmingly for its own domestic manufacturing sector, whereas the other manufacturers export a substantial fraction of their equipment. Russia, the U.S., and the U.K. have all seen varying degrees of decline in machine tool production since their peaks. This occurred because production of machine tools requires substantial societal infrastructure, such as educated workers, significant capital investment. All of the successful countries have maintained clear policies that help machine tool producers, while those that have declined or failed to start significant production have not. These policies have only been successfully implemented by states with strong coordination between elites and government, business and finance. Skilled labor is essential for machine tool production. Mechanical, electrical, and software engineering are required in the design process, and experienced technicians are needed for assembly and testing. Here's a report from the German VDMA, or Mechanical Engineering Industry Association, about the plight of the U.S. as far as machine tools go. It reports that the U.S. provided nearly 80% of the country's industrial machine needs until 1995, but by 2015 was producing only 63%. Today, it's even less, and the overall trend is, unfortunately, going down. If you want to build new production facilities in the United States, says Torsten Gede, a manager at a German investment company, a large part of the machinery and technology has to be imported because local alternatives are rarely available. To that sorry tale, the Wall Street Journal adds, in the 1980s, as U.S. manufacturing slumped, almost seven of ten American machine tool companies closed due to falling demand. The decline continued this century as U.S. manufacturers outsourced more, It's a real eye-opening report, and I suggest that uh, everybody get a chance to read it. It's only 17 pages long. Once again, uh, you can find it at the Asian Robotics Review. This is Robotics Radio News website. It's called uh, Machine Tools, a Study in Advanced Manufacturing by Bismarck Analysis. Great report, great reading, and very informative. Well, dear friends, we've come to the close of another This Is Robotics Radio News podcast. Many thanks for coming. We sincerely hope that you enjoyed your brief stay with us, found the program interesting, and had a few takeaways that will stick in your memory banks and power your day along. Thanks also to Global Robotics for being such a wonderful source for news. Please remember, if you have news to share, requests, kind words, or a bone to pick, please get in touch with us at news at thisisrobotics.com. Once again, news at thisisrobotics.com. As a production of Asian Robotics Review, we hope you visit the site regularly. And please, sign up for our twice-weekly newsletters. It's painless. Just your email is all we need. So long, until next time. That brings to a close today's edition of Radio News. As always, thank you for your interest and attention. Until our next report, please be sure to click on over to This Is Robotics, the online news column at Asian Robotics Review. Also, look for This Is Robotics radio news at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and Pandora. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, This Is Radio News, signing off. Have a great day.